Okay, welcome back. So uh, before we begin the talk, um, one or two brief announcements. Um, if, uh, if you wanna to practice together some more, uh, I will be teaching this coming Saturday uh, online via Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, uh, doing a day-long program on letting go and forgiveness. Um, so I'll put the link to that in the chat. And um, also, if you want to stay in touch um, and you're not on my email list, I send out one or two short notes a month with a teaching or a reflection, and I would be really happy to stay in touch with you. Um, so feel free to sign up for that if you like. The link is there in the chat. Okay, so Dhamma practice. So I'd like to explore together this evening um, question of uh, what it means to make progress on the spiritual path and how do we do that? Um, a lot of heaviness for me in my heart these days. There's so much going on in the world uh, that is painful and disturbing um, from violence, in Eastern Europe to the violence in the United States, uh, gun violence, violence of racial injustice and poverty, um, continued challenges of the pandemic and how that is affecting so many aspects of our life, including the economy and the climate. It's, a really difficult time for many of us, I think, to be alive. And um, a lot of the people I talk with these days, you know, and ask like, how are you? Um, it's not an easy answer. And a lot of folks, myself included, feel tired, you know, with um, so much to feel. So what, is, what does our practice have to do with any of it? Um, what would it mean if we were making progress on this path? Um, and how can we do that? So it's kind of a nebulous idea, progress. And um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it was to try to, to ground it and give some context for how to make that feel more practical and accessible. Um, and also to offer some pointers on how we can um, how we can bring about those results. And of course, we hear a lot in Buddhist practice and spiritual practice about not clinging, not having a goal. And so there's a little bit of a paradox there, right? Because on the one hand, there's this perspective of um, don't chase after anything, don't try to get something. And on the other hand, of course, we have goals. Right? We want to feel less stress. We want to learn how to manage our emotions better. We want to know how do I respond to all of the suffering in the world in a way that's meaningful? How do I deal with my anger and my grief, with the resentment I feel? Um, how do I manage my energy? How do I clear my mind? How, what, what does it mean to be at peace, to have freedom? So real questions that we're seeking answers to, many of us. One thing that's important to keep in mind as we touch into this topic of what is progress, how do we make progress, is 
checking where you're starting from. One of the biggest obstacles in spiritual practice is approaching it like a self-improvement project. Um, one meditation teacher, Bob Sharples, has this beautiful phrase. He says, the subtle aggression of self-improvement. There can be this way that our whole meditation practice is founded on the unquestioned idea that there's something wrong with us, that we need fixing, and that this is the thing that's going to do it. So, of course, healing happens. We can grow and learn, but we're not broken either. It's not about rejecting who we are for some more ideal version of ourselves, which is a certain kind of violence. Instead, this whole path and practice can be an act of love, an offering to the better parts of ourself, that we're inviting us to step into the fullness of who we are and can be, rather than rejecting something. So when we talk about progress on the spiritual path, the next thing for me that's important to um, mention and point out and make sure there's some understanding is that this is not a linear process. So it's not you know day one, day 10, day 100, it's this kind of gradual sort of upward movement of things getting better and better and better. Um, it's more like a labyrinth you think you're getting close and then the next thing you know, you're all the way at the outside, but you are still progressing. So you could think of it as a labyrinth, as cyclical, um, but it's definitely not linear. So one of the ways to guard against that kind of linear thinking where we're trying to measure our progress every step of the way is to look at our spiritual practice in from a larger time frame, to take it in periods of years rather than certainly not days and even months. Um, someone once asked the Dalai Lama this question about, you know, have you seen progress or is there progress in spiritual practice? And his response was, you know, yes, it's good to check every five or 10 years. So we have to give it time and to take a real long view. If we look at the Buddhist cosmology, um, the traditional view is of lifetimes. So you don't have to believe in that to benefit from the meditation practice and the path that supports it, but it gives you some sense of the scale. So what would it be like instead of checking every week, how am I doing? What's it like to think about it in terms of years, really giving yourself to something, probably seeing benefits along the way, but then looking back over a longer period of time. So what is it to make progress? Understanding that progress doesn't mean I'm bad and I need to fix myself and get to this better place. And also understanding that it doesn't mean I'm going to be able to see it in this very clear linear way from day to day. So those two caveats, um, I wanna talk about this idea of um, progress moving along the path in three different ways. And then I wanna talk about one or two key things that can support how we can progress on the path. Um, so one is developing certain qualities. Another way of measuring progress, seeing progress is changes in the meditation practice itself. And the third are, is changes in our life. 
So let's talk about each of those a little bit. Developing qualities. One of the results of any genuine spiritual or contemplative practice is shaping the heart and the mind, increasing the presence of healthy, positive, nourishing qualities, and decreasing the presence of unhealthy, harmful qualities. So there are many, many healthy, bright, nourishing qualities that deepen, that grow, that get brighter, more present, more accessible, things like kindness, patience, courage and energy, truthfulness, honesty. And then the what we often call afflictive emotions, things like hatred, greed, resentment, fear, jealousy, impatience, irritation, these become attenuated. Not because we're fighting against them or trying to suppress them, but because where we are withdrawing, slowly and consistently withdrawing our energy from them and starting to understand their functioning and, and the roots in the mind. And so it's like growing a garden and we're giving water and sunlight and nutrients to the plants that we want to grow, to the ones that bear fruit. And the ones that we don't, we're slowly shading out, withdrawing nourishment from them so they start to wither. So that means that the afflictive states over time, they're less frequent, they're less intense, they don't last as long. When they do visit, they don't take us over. They're not as chaotic and overwhelming, they pass more quickly. So this is the trajectory in terms of developing qualities. There are three qualities in particular that are kind of keystones for progress on the path. Gratitude, giving, and equanimity. So gratitude and awareness of what we have received in this life an appreciation of what's already here rather than continually seeking something else. So gratitude, contentment, a sense of fullness in the heart. That doesn't mean accepting the status quo or being content with uh, an inequitable system that robs the majority of the world in order to privilege a small number of people. Gratitude and contentment means that we're clear on our priorities in life and we recognize what's important and appreciate the gifts and the blessings that are here. This is essential for any kind of transformation in our communities and world. We can't sustain work for social change without being nourished by a deep appreciation of the gifts and blessings in life. And this is a direct outcome of our spiritual practice, noticing what's already here instead of always looking to the future, to something better, to something bigger, to something else for our fulfillment. So gratitude is a fruit of spiritual practice and a sign of progress on the path. The companion of gratitude, the other side of gratitude, is generosity, service, and compassion. 
when we feel and see and appreciate the goodness in our life, the heart's natural movement is to want to give back. When I feel full, when I feel enriched, I want to give. So another fruit of practice is a natural movement of the heart towards generosity and compassion. Seeing the shared vulnerability of the human condition and naturally wanting to give back, feeling inspired to help others. So this too is a hallmark of a deepening, maturing spiritual practice, a movement towards service, generosity, compassion. So the third quality that is kind of a keystone for progress on the spiritual path is what's called equanimity. This is a quality of non-reactivity in the heart and mind. It means we have more balance. We have greater perspective on the ups and downs in life, and also a certain, a certain kind of steadiness inside. The, the irritants of life don't throw us off center. It's not that we don't feel them, but there's more ballast. We're no longer placing our sense of well-being or even identity on things that are unreliable. Like how well, how good I look today or the shape of my body or the, you know, plumpness of my skin or the size of my bank account or the way, um, the way things go, if I get what I want, all of that isn't up to us. The more clearly we see that and come to understand through our practice, the futility and the cost of resisting the natural unfolding of life, the less, the less we struggle with reality. And what I'm referring to here when I say the natural unfolding of life, the less we struggle with reality, I'm not talking about the injustice of human society and, and, and human-made structures. I'm talking about the laws of nature, the fact that we all age, that we get sick, that things are out of our control, the fundamental truths of being human on this planet. We stop struggling against that. When we stop struggling against that, we have that much more energy to struggle against changing the way we've created this world so that we have a future for our children. So it's, a, um, again, a withdrawing of energy from things that are fruitless so that we have more to give in other areas. So this is one of the main ways that um, the flowering of spiritual practice can occur is these, the presence of these qualities in our heart, our mind, and our life. In particular, these three, gratitude, generosity, service, wanting to give back out of compassion, and equanimity, non-reactivity, balance. Okay. Another way that we um, see and experience changes and progress in spiritual practice over time is informal meditation or contemplative practice itself. So here at Spirit Rock, 
This is an insight meditation community. Perhaps some of you have other forms of spiritual practice. Um, whatever, whatever technique or method or tradition you are following, if you are fully committed to it and you are practicing in, in a diligent way, over time you get better at it. You improve in the art, the craft of contemplative practice. That's not the aim. The aim of contemplative practice is to get better at living and to realize our potential. In the Dharma, we talk about awakening, enlightenment, freeing the heart and the mind from the constrictions of ignorance, greed, and hatred. These distortions and deep-seated patterns in consciousness. Along the way, we get a lot better at using the tool of meditation to do that. So the skills of meditation themselves start to improve. We're able to handle and use it in a much more refined and skilled way. What does that look like? It's gonna be different for each of us because we have different strengths. Some of the areas that you may see changes in over time include the capacity to direct and gather the mind. We talk sometimes about the untrained mind. In the untrained mind, we are a slave to our own mind. Whatever momentary whim, desire, or impulse happens to strike us, we get pulled along by it. As we practice, as we cultivate, that relationship changes. The awareness of the heart becomes the master and the mind becomes the, um, the supporting sort of energy rather than being oppressed by our own mind. We're in charge that relationship shifts. But one of the ways that we taught that you can see that is through the power of concentration. So concentration is the ability to gather and settle the mind, not to control it, not to force it, but to gently support it, to settle, to downregulate, to be collected and clear, to not be fragmented and scattered and pulled in a million directions. Doesn't mean it's like that all of the time, but it means we are familiar with and understand how that process occurs and we're able to access and encourage it more with more skill, with more reliability. Another way we see um, the skill of meditation itself changing and growing is a certain quality of gentleness, a certain kind of friendliness and care in our approach to the practice and to ourselves. So there's less forcing there's less control, there's less struggle, there's less beating ourselves up and putting ourselves down. And instead, a certain kind of elegance, a certain finesse. It's like listening to someone play an instrument who's been playing for 20 years versus someone who's been playing for 20 days, right? It's gonna sound really different. There's a certain quality of ease in playing the notes, you know where they are and how to find them. 
There's a gentleness in the approach. Part of that comes um, ironically from having more realistic expectations. So there's less rigidity in the mind, less attachment to things being a particular way. Like when I sit down to meditate, it has to be this way or else. That kind of thinking is driven in part by ignorance, by just not understanding the way the mind works, and also by a certain kind of self-view, by an unrecognized equation with my self-worth and the content of my meditation. Who I am and how, val- how you know, my own value is somehow related to whether or not I'm able to stay with the breath. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) And if my mind is all over the place, it means that I'm a failure and I can't meditate and I've been wasting my time for the last fill in the blank, however many months or years you've been meditating. So we move beyond that to start to recognize that it's not up to us. The mind isn't in our control. It's influenced by so many different factors. So we lower our expectations. Some days we can't concentrate and that's okay. We're less disturbed by the passing weather of our inner life. There's a deeper sense of non-identification with our thoughts and feelings. It means we don't take ourselves so seriously. If I feel anxious, that's okay. Sometimes human beings feel anxious. It's just an emotion. It doesn't mean anything about me or my practice. It comes and it goes. So we're able to see and relate to the content of our experience with more spaciousness, less control. And in that, there's a a quality of, um, of peacefulness, of contentment. That's not about getting what we want. It's not about controlling the mind and making it fit my expectation of how my meditation be should be after this many years. It's about realizing and understanding how things work and letting go. These are some of the changes you may see in your meditation practice. Another one that I was pointing to in the guided meditation is a certain capacity to recognize awareness a familiarity with the knowing quality of mind. Instead of always being focused on what we're experiencing, over time you become aware of the field of awareness within which things are being experienced. One of the analogies that's used sometimes is like going to the movies. We go to the movies, I don't know how many years it's been since I went to the movies. We watch a movie, watch something on TV, and if it's engaging, we lose touch with what's happening around us, right? We become absorbed in the story and the characters. And then someone coughs or sneezes next to us or something changes and we kind of snap out of it. We become aware of our surroundings and that this is, these are pictures on a screen. So in our life, we tend to become absorbed in the movie what's happening, what will happen, what did happen, what did they say, what won't they say, why? And we lose the perspective 
of all of this changing and there's a certain quality of awareness that's present, that's not changing. That becomes clearer through the meditation. So it's a shift in figure and ground. Instead of, instead of being entranced by the figures of experience, what's in the foreground, we're able to be aware of the underlying space within which it's all happening, the space of awareness. It's all making sense to folks. Yeah. Okay. Good. So we've talked about two ways that um, progress can appear or unfold, uh, developing these different qualities, seeing the balance of qualities in the mind change, um, changes in our meditation practice itself, a certain kind of skill that develops. Third way we experience progress in spiritual practice is changes in our daily life, changes in how we're living, which in many ways is the whole point. So of course, some of the things I've already been talking about translate into our daily life, the presence of those qualities, they're more available and accessible, they animate our relationships and conversations, our inner dialogue, how we relate to ourselves. all of that starts to shift. One of the things that we may notice over time is that we have new responses to old stimuli. The same thing all of a sudden starts to elicit a new response from us. We're no longer stuck in old habits. We're not just reacting unconsciously, but are able to stay present and have a fresh response that's more appropriate. We're less bound by the habits of our life or our social and personal conditioning. And that's due in part, again, to this presence of non-reactivity. We're able to roll with the changes when things don't go our way, we don't get as ruffled. We feel more, the heart is more open, we're less shut down. A colleague of mine, Jeff Warren has this beautiful phrase. He says, um, feel more, suffer less. Our hearts open. We actually feel what's happening in our life and in the lives of our fellow humans and non-humans. But it doesn't break us. It doesn't grind us into the ground we're able to feel tremendous compassion and grief and let it move through us. In our day-to-day life, oftentimes we see a certain humility. We're less fixated on what we think we know, on being right. More open to what we don't know, more connected to qualities like compassion than needing to prove something. We're able to make choices that are for our own and others' welfare more clearly. This is about developing wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to know the difference between what leads to more struggle and entanglement and suffering and what leads to peace and freedom. We start to see that more directly and clearly and make wiser choices.
the more we feel, the more we're making wiser choices, the more we deepen our sensitivity towards what is ethical. There's less willingness to cause harm. There's less willingness to not act in the face of injustice or hatred or violence. We're less willing to stand by and do nothing because we see it clearly and we feel it deeply. These are some of the changes that we may experience in our daily life. And all of this, all of this is held within um, a deep sense of being at home with who we are. Instead of becoming someone else, some kind of like new and improved version of who we are, we become ourselves more fully. We're able to honor our own character, to be fully ourself and to feel free within that. And of course, together with that comes a certain kind of lightheartedness. One of the signs of wisdom is having a good sense of humor, being able to laugh at ourselves, being able to laugh at the tragic nature of life. One, uh, one of my early teachers, a Zen teacher, um, Ekai Korematsu Sensei, uh, one of the things he used to say that really stayed with me is he would tell a story and then he would end it by saying, life, very serious joke. And then he would laugh and laugh and laugh. Very serious joke. So many ways that we see progress unfolding in our, our life over time. You might not see all of these changes, but I'm wanting you to have a sense of one, where it's going, and two, how to evaluate. It's very important to be able to check, you know, is my practice producing results? And if it's not, you've been practicing for five years and you're not seeing any changes, then something needs to be adjusted. So what do we do to support this kind of progress? How does this all come about? How does this develop? How do we make progress? Particularly if we're not making progress, we're like, okay, that sounds great, Oren, but I'm not seeing any of that. I still feel stuck where I was five years ago. What do we do? I was on retreat recently um, with one of, uh, one of my teachers, two of my teachers actually, um, doing a long loving kindness retreat. And um, Kamala Master is one of the teachers I was practicing with, um, shared with me a story um, of a question she asked her teacher, Upandita in Burma. She asked, how do we make progress? How do we progress in this practice, in this path? His answer was very simple. Follow the instructions. It's that simple. We don't have to make it work. We don't have to do anything miraculous or special. But we do need to understand the instructions and we need to follow them. We actually have to put them into practice. 
And so there's certain conditions that are necessary to be able to do this. Certainly having a regular meditation practice is important. Under learning about and understanding the rest of the context of the path, that it's not just about meditating for 20 or 30 or 45 minutes a day. It's about living ethically, practicing wise speech, practicing generosity in our life. It's a way of life, and we need to understand how to integrate the breadth of the path into our life. So this involves study. It involves learning, discussing the teachings with others, being um, sincere in our efforts, a certain quality of commitment. If you practice the violin for five or 10 minutes once a week, guess what? You can practice for five years and you might not improve a whole lot because it's a complicated instrument. We're talking about the mind here. We really need to be devoted to understanding and mastering it if we want to see changes. So it's an honest and sincere effort, looking deeply and following the instructions. So how do we follow the instructions? Well, first, we have to understand them. So we need access to genuine teachings, teachings that are aimed at liberating the heart and the mind rather than feeling good. The Dharma isn't a Band-Aid. It's not about stress reduction. Mindfulness-based stress reduction is a wonderful practice and it's benefiting millions of people. The Dharma is something else. It's about understanding deeply the nature of who and what we are and freeing the heart. What the wellness industry is offering is something else. It's selling feeling good. So we actually have to access genuine teachings. We need to get accurate instructions. How do we do that? So this is where the role of the teacher comes in. And this is the second thing I want to talk about tonight. To make progress in this path, we need to have access to, to accurate teachings so that we can understand the instructions and can follow them. One of the most common questions I get um, is how do I find a teacher? What does it mean to have a teacher? This is an important question, and it's one that we don't talk about in the insight meditation community. So I want to talk about it tonight, and I want to give you some pointers that are not often shared for your own benefit. It's not because I want students. <laughs> I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal, but I'm wanting you to have the information you need to realize your aspirations. What does it mean to have a teacher? What is a teacher? In this tradition, a teacher is someone who's further along the path than we are. Doesn't necessarily mean someone who's fully enlightened. I'm certainly not. It means someone who understands suffering, its cause, its end, and the way that leads to the end of suffering. Someone who can get to know us and can therefore help guide our practice in a very direct and personal way. Now, other Buddhist traditions and certainly other faith traditions have much clearer 
guidelines and access and path towards having such a relationship. So in the Abrahamic traditions, you have, you know, your local pastor or priest or rabbi or sheikh. It's very clear. You go to the temple, to the synagogue, to the church, and you cultivate a relationship with the clergy. In um, the Mahayana and Vajrayana traditions, there's often more emphasis on the teacher-student relationship. So you might have the abbot of a local Zen temple that you have a relationship with. You might be doing koan practice with a teacher in certain Zen or Chan schools. You have a relationship with the Roshi, the sensei, the Zen master. In Vajrayana traditions, of which Tibetan Buddhism is one, there's a lot of emphasis on the guru and on the relationship with the teacher. That's kind of the primary vehicle. In the insight meditation community, which is part of the Theravada tradition, the early Buddhist tradition, the model is different. There's not this emphasis placed on the teacher that you find in other Buddhist traditions. The model is one of what's known as Kalyanamita in Pali. That's a word for closed captioning. I'll put it in the chat, Kalyanamita. It means spiritual friendship. So the model is one of a friend along the path. It's decentralized. It's more empowering to the, to the individual practitioner rather than creating a strong hierarchy. One of the, I think, limitations and sort of drawbacks of the insight meditation community here in the West is um, it's grown up in such a way that there's this very kind of unidirectional approach to learning and practicing meditation. It's, I mean, it's happening right now, right? Okay, here's one person talking, kind of sharing information in one direction. We all know that, that learning often happens in an interactive way. It's bilateral. There's conversation. There's back and forth, which is why I always like to leave time for questions and interaction whenever I teach. If you look at the record of the Buddha's teachings from 2,600 years ago, his teaching always occurs in a specific context. Every single sutta we have, every single text we have, begins with the setting, the time, the place, who was there. This is who the Buddha was talking to, and this was the situation. The teachings occur and arise within a specific context. So the traditional approach to learning this practice and teachings at the time of the Buddha was one of apprenticeship. The model was that you found a master, a teacher. The Buddha was not very accessible. He wandered around. You had other people that you might be living with, and you, you lived with them. You spent time with them, or you lived in community with others who were practicing, and you spent time together. You learned from that relationship, from observing, from spending time with the person and seeing how they behave, what is it like to embody this teaching, as well as by receiving their instructions and guidance and practice. But there's this whole other dimension of being an apprentice, serving the teacher, spending time with them, observing them. So there are very few opportunities like that today for lay people those who are, 
have made the choice to live as a monastic, have more opportunities for that, living with a senior teacher, an abbot, an elder. Um, but for those of us who are lay people, most of the opportunities we have are in this kind of structured context of an evening, a day long, a retreat. So it becomes very important who we spend time with and who we receive teachings from. So how do we connect with a teacher? How do we make sure that we're getting accurate instructions and able to practice them? The Buddha gave very specific guidelines on who to allow to step into that role for you. We can look through a history of different religious traditions, certainly the Buddhist tradition, and see the kind of pain and devastation that happens when those in positions of spiritual power and authority violate the boundaries and the sanctity of those relationships. And there's abuse of power by spiritual teachers. It can be shattering. Whole communities have been torn apart, let alone the impact on individuals, whether it's about sex, money, or other abuses of power. So being very careful about that relationship is, is important, especially if someone claims to be enlightened. So how do you evaluate a teacher? Particularly in today's world where it seems like so many people are setting up shop, putting up a shingle. I'm certified as a mindfulness teacher. What does that even mean? How do we know if we can trust this person? So the criteria the Buddha offered are useful when considering placing your trust in any spiritual teacher, especially someone claiming some kind of authority or awakening. So in, um, in uh, Majima Nikaya, uh, for those who are interested, it's uh, the Majima Nikaya 47. Sorry, that's another Pali word. It's going to be hard to close caption. Um, the Buddha encouraged his disciples to investigate their teacher, to really test them out before taking them on. So first he said, know their qualifications. Who authorized them to teach? Are they endorsed by a community or are they self-proclaimed? Are they free from unwholesome states of mind? How do we know that? We're not necessarily psychic. We can't see into their mind and tell, but we can observe how they live. So spend time with them. Observe, are they ethical? How do they speak? How do they act in different situations? Observe them for a long time. Get to know them before you place your trust in them. See how they respond to different situations. How do they react to stress, to being blamed, to being challenged? Are they able to walk their walk? Consider how long they've been doing this. Are they the new kid on the block or do they have a good amount of experience behind them? If they're famous, if they have some kind of renown, how are they navigating that? How do they relate to the dangers of having recognition and fame? Has it gone to their head? So these are some of the questions to ask oneself to investigate, to really observe and look at in considering whether or not to have a relationship with a spiritual teacher. 
The ultimate test, of course, is to put their teaching into practice and see if it works, follow their instructions and see if it's helpful. So you might be listening to this and going, yeah, that sounds great, Oren, but like, where am I going to find a teacher, right? Like, I don't have anyone to test. I don't have anyone to observe. So how do you find a teacher in this tradition? So I want to acknowledge it's not necessarily easy. There isn't a clear avenue for how to do that. And in some, in some ways, there's a shortage of well-qualified teachers who are actually available to work with students. So in my personal view, the ideal situation is a local Dharma center with a teacher that you can meet with in person. So anyone who comes to me and asks, how do I find a teacher? I want a teacher. The first thing I would say to them is, see if there's a local meditation center near you. Go and check it out. See who's teaching. See if you connect with them. That's going to be the most beneficial to be able to meet in person with someone where you live. That's not the case for many of us. There might not be a center near you, or maybe there is, and you don't connect with a teacher, or it's from a different tradition or practice that doesn't speak to you. Of course, there are many other options to connect today online, different retreats. So the first thing is to see whose teachings speak to you. Who has a way of expressing the path that makes sense intuitively that you can learn from? So go to dharmaseed.org or audiodharma and listen to talks. Listen to different teachers and see what speaks to you. Once you find someone that you have a sense you can learn from, do some research, check out their background, develop a relationship with that person and be committed to doing that. You have to be clear in your own mind about wanting to have that relationship. There's the saying you may have heard, when the student is ready, the teacher will come. Part of what that's pointing to, as I understand it, is if you're sincere in your longing, you will find a way to connect with a teacher. So show up at their events. Go to their events online, go to their events in person if you can get there. Go to their website, review their schedule, see what they're offering. What opportunities do they have to work with them over time? Are they involved in any year-long programs, online courses? Make an effort to connect. When you're at events, ask questions. Engage with the person. Develop a relationship. Be yourself. Let, let yourself be seen. If you're on a retreat with the teacher, ask to be in their small group. Or if they're one-to-one -one interviews, ask to have a one-to-one -one interview with them so that you can develop a relationship. Over time, you'll get to know each other. If you have the resources, the time, the energy, offer to help. Offer energy, offer skills, offer to volunteer. This is another way to develop and deepen relationship. At some point, be direct and ask, do you meet with students one-on-one? -on -one? Use your own emotional intelligence about when and how to ask that. Very few teachers that I know take on students one-to-one -one that they don't already know. You have to have a relationship. How do you have a relationship? You have to show up. You have to spend time together to make a connection. So once you have a connection, ask and ask them if they meet with students privately and if they'd be willing to work with you over time. If they don't or if they're full, 
Ask if they have any colleagues that they can recommend, that they can refer you to. Once you connect with a teacher, there, there are other things to do in order to get the most out of that relationship. And again, the Buddha was very clear about this. He, there's um, a sutta um, on the eight conditions necessary for wisdom. The Buddha talked about cultivating an attitude of respect and care and affection for the teacher. It's difficult to learn from someone if we don't hold them in a certain kind of esteem. Or we can put it the other way, it's easier to learn from someone when we have a sense of respect and care and affection towards them. It doesn't mean we necessarily need to put them up on a pedestal, but to have a certain quality of appreciation for the work that they've done and what they're offering. That will be to your benefit. It will allow you to take in what they're saying at a deeper level. It will affect how you hear and receive their teachings. Next, be honest with the teacher. Tell them the truth or they can't help you. Notice if you're wanting approval, wanting to say what you think they want to hear so that they be real about who you are and what you experience. That's the best way they're gonna be able to help you learn about your own mind. Ask questions and follow their instructions. What if you can't find a teacher? You've tried, you've reached out, you've asked, you come up empty-handed. Don't worry, you're not out of luck. We all have one teacher in this tradition and that's the Buddha. He was the first teacher. He's all of our teacher. So we can develop a relationship with the lineage and with the Buddha as the first teacher. The Buddha said, those who see the Dhamma see me. In other words, those who see the truth of the way things are, see the Buddha. That means the Buddha is still teaching. The Dhamma is not far away. It's not something esoteric. It's what's happening right here and now, every moment in our own mind and body and the world around us. So our teacher is all around us. Ultimately, life is our best teacher. As one of my first teachers said, allow life to be your teacher. Are we willing to learn from the events of our life? Again, as the saying goes, when the student is ready, the teacher will come. Are we ready to learn the lessons life is trying to teach us? Life is trying to teach all of us some very important lessons right now. Are we willing to learn? Look around at what's happening in our world, in our society. Are we willing to learn from that? Do we have the courage to recognize the crises that we're facing and the kinds of qualities and response that's being called for? We don't have to look far to find a teacher if we know how to listen. At the deepest level, there's a teacher within each of us, our own inner teacher. 
eventually, even if you have the most amazing teacher, we have to internalize it. We have to become our own teacher. Because even the best teacher will one day leave us. Remember hearing one story about um, an elder, I don't remember which tradition it was from, uh, who was reflecting and said, all of my teachers are gone now. The only one remaining is silence. But wherever you go, there's always the possibility of learning, of receiving a teaching on the truth, because it's who and what we are. So I offer these thoughts for your reflection tonight. Thank you so much for your kind and generous attention. So my friends, we have some time now. Um, for some questions, I am going to invite Ileana um, from Spirit Rock to um, moderate here. If you have a question, you can raise your virtual hand or you can send it in the chat to Ileana and uh, she'll help us find our way. So what's up? How did all that land for you? What questions do you have? That doesn't make sense or would you like further clarification about? I know you're not asleep because I can see you moving. Looks like Susan, Susan G, was that a question? Or were you just waving? Yeah, see if you can raise your hand virtually, Susan. It'll be easier for Ileana to find you. I found you, Susan. Hi, thank you for your wise words and I have been in other um, courses that you've taught on right speech, and I've appreciated them all. Um, is it possible to just have teachers that you listen to in courses? You know, like mm -hmm. I love listening. Well, I've listened to you and been part of your courses. Pema Chodron, Jack Cornfield. Um, I mean, these are, these are big teachers that, you know, yeah. I would never be able to go to their. Right. Teachers. So uh, sometimes I feel like, oh, I don't need a teacher. But then other times I'm like, yeah, maybe that's not true. Yeah. So what do you think? I, thank you. I really love that question, Susan. And, and I think it's a both and for me. Absolutely. We can have teachers that we never meet. And we can learn, we can learn from everyone, of course. Right. And so you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Dalai Lama, um, Jack, Joseph, Sharon, Pema Chodron, Dr. King, you know, people who are even no longer with us, we can learn from them and consider them our teacher without a doubt. And, and 
I believe it is the rare being that wouldn't also benefit from some direct personal guidance. I think it's hard to do it on our own without being able to have that experience of saying, okay, I, I did all of that and here's where I'm stuck, right? Or I keep getting into this place and I don't quite know how to handle it because we can't see our own limitations by definition. So sometimes it takes being able to put something out there to someone else and have them say, ah, try looking at it this way for something to shift. So I think it's a both and. We can have teachers that we never meet and it's also important to have some that we do. Is that helpful? Yeah, thank you. Great, thank you. Fiona. Hi, Fiona, are you there? Uh, yes, I, I just needed to unmute. <laughs> um, I apologize, I'm not on video. I'm just not in a place where I'm presentable to be seen. No worries, I can hear you. I can hear you well. So tell me what's up. Thank you. Um, I just really loved your teaching, everything that you said. Um, I, I'm blessed that I do have an abbot here um, at a monastery that's a wonderful teacher. Um, however, I, um, I feel that I'm still very, very young on the path, even though I've been trying to learn to meditate for many years. Um, my question uh, was, was more to what you were talking about initially, when you said it's not about fixing, I'm not bad and I don't, you know, it, that yeah. I don't need to be fixed. Right. And I was just wondering if you could maybe um, give some more suggestions of how to get out of that mindset because I am, that's where I live. I right. live in, I'm not good at meditation. I need to get better. I'm bad at all of this and I need to get better. And I, I, right. You know, so just sure. would love to hear any um, wisdom around that, please. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate the question, Fiona. It's an important one. Um, and a common, a common experience. I know that was where I started, <laughs> for sure. Um, I think the first stage is what you just described, is starting to see it more clearly. Just starting to become aware of that narrative mentally and then also starting to feel into what are the different emotions and impulses that are driving it? How does it feel inside to be coming from that place? What is the experience in my heart and in my body? So we're starting to actually contact this, um, this pattern of I'm not good enough and I need to do this so that I'll finally become better to start to really feel what the, the texture of what that feels like. That's the first stage. Then we need to learn how to anchor our attention somewhere else. You're not gonna get out of that by trying to stop it. 
that's just going to put you into a struggle and actually feed it more. But we do need to learn how to withdraw energy or attention from it. And this is what I was pointing to in the meditation with working with the anchor is you just choose to put your attention somewhere else. So let's say you're in that place. Okay. Let's say you're doing your Zazen or you're doing your meditation and it's raging. It's, you know, you're never going to be good enough, whatever the story is. Okay. And you notice it, feel the tips of your thumbs touching just for a moment in that moment of feeling the sensation, the story is not running the show. That's a moment that's free from doubt. That's free from aversion. Thich Nhat Hanh used to say, a moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. So one moment at a time, come out, come out of the story, come out of the pattern, anchor in the present, feel what's true in this moment. And then the whole thing comes crashing back in. That's fine. Then you do it again. Then you do it again. So this is the second stage. It starts to develop a capacity to step outside of the storm and now begin to have a relationship with it. Third stage, and these are not necessarily sequential. These are happening kind of simultaneously. Strengthen other qualities, gratitude, loving kindness, um, self-compassion, really important for, for working with this. You need to turn the volume up on, on the, the fuzzy, warm mm. components so that you have someplace else to lean into. Ooh, this is hard, sweetie. Oh, ouch, right? How awful to be putting myself down like that. Come, let's, let's, let's be tender with this. So you have, to, you have to increase the presence of these healthy, nourishing qualities. Now, as those, as those three come online, you see it, you're able to feel it, you're able to step out of it, and you have other qualities present. Now you can start to drain the energy out of it and understand it and transform it. Now the conditions are present to, in, to, to um, engage with the actual experience and allow it to reveal itself and unfold. And often in my experience, there's grief, there's pain, there are tears that wanna be shed, there's anger that needs to be felt, there's, there's stuff in there, it's got energy. But we need to create the conditions to be able to hold it and feel it so that it doesn't just slam us. Hmm. That's what's helped me. Wonderful. Thank you very, very, very much. Yeah, you're welcome. So let's see, we have time for one or two more. Josh, you can come forward. Hi, um, and thank you so much for, uh, for the teaching and your talk. Um, I especially love the way you described progress as a, a labyrinth. And so I wanted to, uh, to ask uh, a little bit about that, I guess, um, something, I guess, do you have any framing or guidance or, or thoughts on when it feels like you're actually like going in the opposite direction, like you're not making progress, but you're actually um, regressing? And what's a better way to frame that than I'm going backwards? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm going to turn something off that's making music and then respond to your question. 
<clears throat> okay. Yeah, so when we're in that, that phase of practice where it feels like we're going in the opposite direction, there's a lot that can be said about that. Sometimes it gets talked about as cycles of purity and purification. One of the core texts in the early Buddhist tradition is called the path of purification. And so the understanding is that part of the way the, the liberation process functions is that we go through these periods where the 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 beautiful and innate kind of qualities of the heart come to the surface and that those those are so transformative that they have the power to kind of pull up the dregs and then those come out in order to be worked through and then as we, and that's where it feels like we're going in the opposite direction but but the the saying to, the so a short way of remembering this is no mud, no lotus, Mahayana saying. So the, 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 all of the junk and the hard stuff, that's the compost. That's, the, that's actually the fuel for our awakening. It's not a mistake. That's where we learn patience. That's where we learn steadiness. That's where we learn real compassion for ourselves and others. When we're lost and we're suffering and we're beating ourselves up, that's where the rubber hits the road. So, um, and then and then the qualities strengthen by going through that, and then we come out of it into another period of clarity and purity, and so the cycle goes. I hope that's helpful, Josh. Great. All right. So maybe one more, Ileana, and then we'll uh, and we'll wrap up for the night. Toby, you're next. Sure. Hi, Oren. Hey. Hey, how are you? I've taken a number of your not uh, your nonviolent communication classes. And, oh, wonderful. You know, courses, which have been wonderful. Um, I've been a Vipassana practitioner for a number of years. Um, and I started um, practicing a Zen, a Zen practice. Um, with uh, Roshi uh, uh, Joan Halifax. Mm. And, and now I'm just like a little confused, like which lineage to pursue um, in, in, because they are different. I, there's a lot of similarities and there's some differences. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what you mm. thought of that question. Sure, yeah. I think you need to trust yourself. You know, what, what speaks to you right now? What is it, what, what makes the most sense for you? Um, trust that and then give yourself to it fully. I don't, my personal view is I don't think it matters so much which one you choose. Mm -hmm. what, what matters is that you commit to it fully and see it through. What you don't want to do is spend a couple months doing this and then go back to that. And then when that gets hard, you switch to the other one. 
that's going to confuse things and you're not going to deepen in either because you're always going to be shifting. So take some time. It's okay to move back and forth initially in the transition and feel it out. Um, and I don't know how long that's been happening, but I'd say after six months, maybe less, I don't know. Trust your intuition, ask your own heart, you know, what's calling me, what feels right. And then give yourself to it, give yourself to it for a year. And then reevaluate, step back and see how's this feeling? Is this still working? Mm -hmm. That would be my sense. And ask, you know, if you have a relationship with Roshi Joan, ask her, see what she says. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, my friends, um, I see there's a few more questions and I'm, I'm sad that I won't have time to respond, Christy and Barbara, to your questions, but um, I hope we have another chance uh, down the line to meet and uh, explore together. Um, again, if you wanna uh, practice together a little more, I'll be teaching all day on Saturday um, online on forgiveness and letting, letting go. Um, so warm invitation to join me if you're free. And uh, thank you to Ileana and Jesse and Spirit Rock for hosting and bringing us all together. And uh, thank you for your time and for your practice. May the benefits of our time together be the cause of our own deep awakening and liberation. And may that be in the service of the freedom, the safety, and the happiness of all beings everywhere. May all beings be free. Thank you, everyone. Take care.